All right, Daryl. Well, first, I want to, uh, again, thank you for allowing me to, to come into your home and, and meet you. Uh, I've wanted to do this for a long time, so I, I really appreciate the time um, and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You got it. Uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, I always like to get the Genesis story of people that I meet and how they end up doing what they do in life. We were talking offline earlier about you growing up internationally overseas. Uh, what is the the basic story of how you got involved in your, I, I don't even know if I'd call it activism work, but your engagement work with uh, gr- groups in the country that would seem strange or um, organizations that are uh, you didn't have a lot of exposure to until you were later in life. Did you, what is the, what's kind of your initial background story of, of where you grew up and, and how you got into the, into the U.S.? Okay, sure. Well, I've, I was born in Chicago. I'm uh, age 63, born in 1958. And my, my father was one of the first black Secret Service agents in this country. And then he went from the Secret Service to the U.S. Foreign Service. And at the age of three in 1961, we began traveling abroad uh, for, for the U.S. State Department. I grew up as an American embassy brat. Hmm. And how it works is the State Department assigns you to a country, a foreign country, for two years. At the end of that tour of duty, you come back to the States. You may be here for a few months, perhaps a year, and then you get reassigned to another country for two years. So back and forth, back and forth. So my formative years growing up from age three you know, to my early teens, uh, I was in different countries every two years. And I did, my, my first exposure to school, kindergarten, uh, was overseas. Uh, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade were overseas. Now, here's the thing, and this is, I think, a very crucial part of, uh, of my story. Being exposed to school for the first time overseas, my classes were filled with kids from all over the world. Anybody who had an embassy in those particular countries to which we were assigned, all of their kids went to the same school. Hmm. My classmates were from Italy, Nigeria, Japan, Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, Sweden, Australia, Russia, you name it. If they had an embassy, their kids were in my school. And that being my first exposure to school, that became my norm. Hmm. That became my baseline, right? We all got along. Uh, they may not have looked like me. Some of them spoke different languages than I spoke, right? But we all got along. We worked together. We played together. We had slumber parties together. Hmm. Whatever you know, little kids do. If you were to open the door to my classroom and pop your head in, you would your first exclamation would be, "This looks like a United Nations of little children." Yeah, because that's exactly what it was. Well, of course, at the end of the two years, I would return home with my parents. I would be at that point in either all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated schools or the newly integrated ones. And there was not the amount of diversity in this country at the time that I had overseas. So that was reflective in my classrooms. It was either all black kids or black and white kids. 
And this is, you know, in the, in the 1960s, in the early 60s, right? Now, even though desegregation was passed by the Supreme Court in uh, 1954, it didn't just change overnight. You know, it took decades in some cases for schools to become, you know, integrated. So <clears throat> one of the times when I came back home uh, in 1968, at the age of 10, I was in the fourth grade. And we had uh, moved to Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of uh, Boston. I was one of two black children in the entire elementary school. There was me in fourth grade, and there was a little black girl in second grade. So I, you know, I, I wasn't really friends with her. I, you know, I was aware of her, but uh, you know, she wasn't my my uh, age group. So I only saw her like at, at lunchtime in the cafeteria or at recess. All of my friends are fourth and fifth graders. So consequently, they all were white. Uh, several of my male friends were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join. So it sounded like fun, you know, go camping, tie knots, you know, do whatever, you know, Scouts do. So I joined. And um, one day we had this uh, parade. We, we, uh, we participated in a parade, I should say, uh, right next door to Belmont from Lexington, Massachusetts, to Concord, Massachusetts, which was the route that Paul Revere rode. And so we're, we're all celebrating that. The Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Brownies, uh, 4-H Club, and other organizations. So I was the only black scout that I could see. Not that I was looking for any, but you just, you know, you notice it um, in this parade. And uh, everything was going along smoothly. You know, we're marching down the streets. Streets are blocked off. Sidewalks are filled with nothing but white people, waving and cheering, smiling, having a good time. We got to a certain um, point in this parade route, and suddenly I was getting hit with uh, rocks and bottles and soda pop cans and things like that. And it wasn't, it wasn't everybody doing this. It was just maybe, I'd say maybe between four and five people off to my right on the sidewalk. They were all white people. I remember there being a couple kids and a couple adults throwing things. They were standing together. So I assumed maybe it was kids and their parents. I don't know. But my first thought was, these people over here to my right, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. I thought everybody was, was, was being targeted. I didn't realize that I was the only object of, of, of these projectiles. Uh, I realized that when my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader all came running over, and these were white people, and they huddled over me and covered me with their own bodies and moved me along, rushed me along. And then I realized nobody else is getting this special treatment. So now I'm trying to blame myself. Like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. What did I do? What, why are they mad at me? What, I, I didn't do anything. And, you know, why are they doing this? All they would do is kind of shush me and rush me along. Daryl, hurry up, move, move along, move along. It'll be okay. Go on, keep going. They never answered my question as to why this was happening. So at the end of the parade, you know, we all go home. I went home. My mother and father were not at the parade. They were at home. And when they saw me, uh, you know, I was all scratched up and stuff. And, uh, they, you know, they were cleaning me up and putting Band-Aids on me and all that stuff. And they were asking me, how did I fall down? and get all scraped up. They thought I tripped or something. I told them, you know, I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what had happened. 
and they sat me down and they explained to me why this had happened to me. Now understand my background. This is very important. I did not believe my parents. Hmm. I literally thought they were lying to me because, well, several reasons. One, it made no sense. These people didn't know me. What do you mean they were trying to do this because of my skin color? That doesn't even make sense. I never heard of anybody attacking somebody because of their skin color. I grew up around all kinds of skin colors, right? I had East, East Indians in my class. I had Asians in my class. People from Spain, people from Mexico, people from, you know, Croatia. Well, it was Yugoslavia back then, you know, and different places. All kinds of skin tones. And these people are throwing rocks at me because of my skin. You know, I thought my mom and dad were lying to me. It made no sense. And so I did not believe my parents. And <clears throat> that's one reason. Second reason is the people doing it did not look any different to me than the people in my, in my class or my fellow scouts or their parents. And they didn't treat me like that. So why, and they know me. Why are these people who look like them, who don't know me, treating me like that? Nothing made sense. So I did not accept their reason that it was the color of my skin that was causing these people to do this. That was the first time ever in my life that I thought my folks had lied to me. Hmm. Well, uh, about a month and a half or so later, that same year, on April the 4th, 1968, <clears throat> Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember it very well. Nearby Boston, every major city in this country, my hometown, Chicago, right here where we are, Washington, D.C., all burned to the ground in the name of this new word that I had learned a couple months prior called racism. Hmm. So now I understood that this phenomenon that my parents tried to explain to me called racism, it does exist. But I didn't know why. Why do people uh, hate one another and, uh, and try to hurt one another over nothing more than skin color? It just made no sense. Hmm. So I formed a question in my mind at that time, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been seeking out the answer for the next 53 years. Um, I would ask people, you know, they said, oh, well, Daryl, you know, that's just the way some people are. That's just the way it is. Well, that wasn't good enough. Well, why? Why, why do they think like that? Well, you know, that, that's just how it is. Some people just, just feel that way. But there has to be a reason. Nobody was giving me a reason that would placate. and say, oh, okay, I get it now. Okay, fine. No, there was no satisfaction. As an adolescent uh, and on through you know, my adulthood, I would buy books. I have tons of books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the KKK, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, anti-Semitism, racism. All my books talk about it, but they don't give me a satisfactory answer to justify why it happens. <laughs> Your curiosity to answer that question, it sounds like, as you just mentioned, you began to read a lot to try to answer that question. But as your life began to unfold, especially as an adult, you began to engage personally, to do personal research to try to answer that question. 
Was there a point at which or an interaction or a meeting a specific individual that really launched you into this different phase of life where you were beginning to dedicate large chunks of your own time, energy, resources to getting to know the very people that probably would have thrown those rocks and bottles at you at that parade? Yeah, I mean, there there was a chain of events. Um, You know, I went back overseas shortly after that incident because, you know, we were assigned to another country. And, I, and when I went back overseas, I was returned to uh, normalcy, if you will. That was, you know, that was the norm, being around everybody from all over the world. That was my norm. Um, but every time I'd come home back here, there would be some incident. One time, see, I'm here, I'm in 10th grade. We had a class called the POTC, which stood for Problems of the 20th Century. And... Um, it was a class for seniors, 12th graders. I was taking it as a sophomore, 10th grader. I loved my teacher. We had a great teacher. And he was always bringing in controversial speakers to talk to the class. This is 1974. Mm-hmm. I'm age 15. And, uh, you know, the, the speakers we know would talk to, to the class and we could ask them questions or whatever. On this particular day, in 1974, he brought in the head of the American Nazi party to our high school. And, you know, now you got to understand something. This is the 1970s. You can never do that today. Right. Right. I'm glad, I'm glad he, he did it. I'm glad he did it. Cause you know, that, that put me on a, on a trajectory. Right. Okay. So let me give you a little bit of background on, on the American Nazi party. The American Nazi party was founded by a fellow named George Lincoln Rockwell who was a big proponent of the ideology of Adolf Hitler. George Lincoln Rockwell was always getting into it with Martin Luther King. You know, and he was a vicious anti-Semite and racist. And later I would have one of his daughters as as a teacher. Uh, She wanted nothing to do with him. She had long disowned him. Anyway, um, George, okay, the American Nazi party was founded right across the river, right across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., in Arlington, Virginia, by George Lincoln Rockwell. Um, George Lincoln Rockwell was later murdered by one of his own American Nazis, a guy named John Palter. Uh, he and John Palter got into it uh, on the sidewalk one day, right outside of a, of a laundromat or dry cleaners, uh, not, right, not too far from the headquarters, and Palter killed him right there on the sidewalk. So George Lincoln Rock, Rockwell's right-hand guy at the time was a guy named uh, uh, Matt Cole, K-O-E-H-L. And so Matt Cole became the, the leader of the American Nazi Party, the commander, as they call him. Um, and his right-hand guy became a guy named Martin Kerr, K-E-R-R. So on this day in 1974, Matt Cole and Martin Kerr came to my school. And they're standing up at the front of the classroom espousing all these views of white supremacy. There was one other black guy in the classroom besides me. And then there were, there were more in the school, but in this particular class. Um, and Matt Cole pointed at me and pointed at my friend and said, we're going to ship you back to Africa. And then he took his index finger and made a sweeping semicircle uh, motion with, it, with his hand and said, all you Jews out there, you're going back to Africa. And I just sat there looking at this guy like, 
what the hell is this guy talking about? But I, I didn't challenge him. I just sat there very quietly looking at him. I wasn't afraid of him, but I, I, I never heard an adult talk like that. Um, and, you know, I was raised that you always have respect for your elders as figures of authority, whether they're the postman, your teacher, your librarian, the police, your neighbor, your neighbor, whoever was older than you was your elder. And that's supposed to be a figure of authority. So I didn't challenge him. Not that I believed him, but I just sat there looking at him. And one of my classmates said, what happens if they don't want to go? And Matt Cole said, oh, they have no choice. If they do not leave uh, voluntarily, they will be exterminated in the upcoming race war. That was the first time I ever heard the term race war. I'm thinking, what is this man talking about? Race war. And um, that's what prompted me to get all these books, even more books, and study this stuff. So later that day, I was standing by my locker in the hallway doing something, and Matt Cole and Martin Kerr were leaving the school. They'd been there all day because uh, they had other POTC classes to go to. They had to walk past me to, to go out the front uh, office, out the front door of the building. They paused just a few feet from me and looked at me. They didn't say anything to me, but they sneered at me and started laughing. And then they kept on going down the hall to the front of the building and out. I never forgot that. Fast forward eight years. Two years later, I graduated from high school in 1976. Four years later, in 1980, I graduated from college. And music became my profession, but studying race relations became my obsession. And there was nowhere, you know, you could go to study it back then. You know, there were no courses on it. Um, so you had to, like, self-educate. And so I kept up with a lot of that stuff. And I developed some contacts here and there that knew some things, knew some people, had inside information here and there, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I met up with some dangerous people, too, who were... Um, uh, they weren't racist, but they were um, anti-racist, uh, anti but they were just as dangerous as the racists, you know? Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. <clears throat> Back then, you could drive your vehicle up and down Pennsylvania, up and down the 1600 block of Pennsylvania Avenue, which is where the White House is located, and you could just walk into the Capitol building. You know, it's, it's the People's House, the yeah. Capitol. There were, there were no metal detectors, anything like that, no concrete pylons, so you couldn't pull your car up. Um, well, all that changed. You know, people kept trying to ram their vehicles through the gates of the White House, right? So now they stopped all that. Um, somebody planted a bomb in the doorway of Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia, in, in the doorway of his office in the Senate. And uh, nobody got hurt. The bomb went off and blew out the door, the door frame and stuff. You know, nobody was in the office, fortunately, at the time. Um, but a lot of damage was done. From that point forward, you know, they put up metal detectors, put up concrete pylons around the Capitol. So you can, you know, you know breach it uh, until January 6th, right? <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, you know, the law enforcement got involved in trying to track down the people who planted this bomb. And um, I knew one of those people. 
uh, I met one of those people when I, when I would go to these anti-racist meetings. And um, it was like, whoa, you know, I need, I need to stay away from these people. You know, I didn't realize, you know, they were, they were involved in this kind of crazy nonsense. So I figured, you know, I better just do this on my own. And so uh, eight years later, in um, 1982, uh, the American Nazi Party had an unpublicized protest out in front of the White House. There was a park across the street from the White House called Lafayette Park, which is where everybody goes if they want to protest something. Um, and you know, 24 seven, 365 days a year. I'm not exaggerating. There is somebody in the park protesting something. They spend the night there. They have the, people have been there for years. <laughs> they protest nuclear weapons, abortion, uh, the war in the Middle East. You, you name it, you got an issue, global warming, whatever. You got an issue, you go to Lafayette Park, you face the White House, you hold up your billboards. So you think whoever's in the Oval Office will look out the window and read your issue and solve it. So anyway, the American Nazi Party was going to have a silent protest, unpublicized, which means nobody knows about it, not even the police, unless they tell somebody. <laughs> I found out about it. So this is eight years after I met Matt Cole. And so I go down there. I'm two years out of college now. I'm an adult. And I parked my car catty corner to the White House, because back then you could drive there. And I waited. They'll be there 12 noon. So 12 noon, here comes this van. About 13, 14, 15 of these people get out of this van, these American Nazis. There's Matt Cole. There's Martin Kerr. You never forget the face of somebody who tells you they're going to ship you somewhere, whether you like it or not. You, you have no choice but to go or be exterminated, right? I watched Matt Cole get his little Nazis lined up facing the White House. Now, there was nothing that indicated that they were Nazis. There were, there were no swastikas or SS insignias. They all were in no Gestapo uniforms. They all were in uh, dark black suits. And they lined up standing there. I knew they were Nazis because I recognized Matt and, and, uh, and Martin. It's lunchtime in Washington, D.C. People are walking up and down the sidewalk, passing them, not even knowing who they are. Like I said, there's always somebody in that park protesting. I knew who they were. So... Once he got them all lined up, I walked over. I felt the need, I had to confront Matt Cole because I did not confront him when I was in high school because of that dynamic. I was a child, he was my elder, he was an adult. So you have respect for your adult elders, right? Um, but now I felt the need to confront him because yes, he was still my elder, but the dynamic had changed. In 1974, it was child to adult. Now I'm two years out of college. It's adult to adult, right? So I can confront him. So I walked right up to him and I said, Matt Cole. He like, looked at me, he, he like jumped in the line, like, who is this black person? You know, <laughs> you know, knows my name, right? And uh, he says, Do I know you? And all these Nazis are like looking, like, what's going on here? <laughs> and um, I said, Well, uh, you spoke at my high school. And he said, and what high school would that be? And I named my high school. He looked at me again. He goes, yes, 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 yes. I remember you. That was a long time ago. What can I do for you? And I said, do you remember what you told me? Yes. He nodded his head. How can I help you? 
I said, well, I'm still here. And he says, well, I can see that. What can I do for you? I said, well, you can explain to me just who the hell gives you the authority to make permanent travel arrangements for me. He looks at me and he goes, what's your name? I said, Daryl Davis. He put out his hand and he shook my hand and he held my hand tight in his hand. He, he didn't let it go. So he held my hand with his right hand, right? And he took his left hand and shook his, his index finger in my face. And he says, uh, he said, what's your name? I said, Daryl Davis. He said, Mr. Davis, you have to understand one thing. It is in the interest of your race, the black race, to be a strong, a strong race. And you cannot be a strong race unless you are a pure race. And you cannot be a pure race if you are miscegenating with other races. It is in the interest of my race, the Aryan race, which is what he calls the white race, to also be a strong race. We are committing genocide by miscegenating with mud races such as yours. We are becoming a mongrel race. So anybody who was um, a non-Aryan is considered a mud race. And so he's, he's thinking that his, his race is getting wiped out through miscegenation. And he calls that white genocide. So, you know, he went on, you know, um, espousing these views. Now, I wasn't there to beat him up. I was there to, to learn from him. If, you know, where's this mentality coming from? I read all these books by now, but now I need to really have a one-on-one -on -one with somebody and try to understand the mindset. Not accept it, but, but get a sense of, wh of why they think this way. So he went on, you know, and um, I thanked him, and I shook his hand again. And uh, Martin Kerr just standing there, like, looking at us. And, uh, and then I left. Later that summer, uh, they had uh, a publicized uh, rally. And it had been publicized for, like, three months. So everybody knew the Nazis were coming to D.C. And Well, the headquarters is in D.C., but they're coming from all over the country to D.C. Matt Cole announced he was going to have his National American Nazi Party recruitment rally in Washington, D.C. to recruit more people into the American Nazi movement. Now, here's the thing. People protested for three months not to give them a permit. Yeah. Um, but you have to. Because, you know, they're entitled to, to, to their rights, right? Whether you like them or not. Um, so the day came... And protesters, there were tens of thousands of protesters came to D.C. from Richmond, from New York, from Philadelphia, Baltimore. Um, they just converged on, on D.C. A lot of them came to do violence, to, to, to attack the Nazis. Hmm. And um, the police had made arrangements with the Nazis to meet all of them to congregate, meet at some point, some undisclosed location over in Prince George's County. And they were going to put them on a chartered bus so they'd all be together mm. and, and escort them into, into uh, the area and then make a big human circle around them with, with, with different police departments in the D.C. area. All right. So they came in this bus and uh, there were only about 50, maybe, maybe a few less than 50. But because you know, they're cowards and because they had police protection, they wore their Gestapo uniforms. They were holding their swastika flags and SS insignias. And as a, you know, my, my secretary and I 
went down there to watch this. And you couldn't get to them because there's, you know, there's the a, a police. And the protesters, they had bricks and chains, baseball bats, you name it. They, you know, they were there to do damage. And um, there's Matt Cole and Martin Kerr, these Nazis coming off the bus, and they're taunting the crowd. Sieg Heil, high Hitler, white power, all this kind of stuff, right? And the people are like rushing the police. The police have their shields and batons, pushing them back. And um, now the protesters are getting frustrated because they can't get to the Nazis in the circle. So they began throwing things over the heads of the police to, to land on one of the Nazis, you know, bricks and pieces of cinder block and whatever. <laughs> and so the police got pissed and pulled out their tear gas and began shooting the protesters. Protesters began picking up the tear gas canisters and throwing them back at the police. And the police went crazy. Protesters went crazy. Protesters began turning over police cars upside down, bashing out the windows, setting things on fire. You know, you know what goes on in a riot, right? The police went crazy. They began beating everybody with their batons. My secretary and I are just standing there watching this, and we got beat with the baton for just standing there wow. by the police. Um, a lot of other things happened. Anyway, I said, come on, let's, you know, let's get out of here. So we leave. We're watching the, uh, the news. Now, back then, you know, all you had was ABC, NBC, and CBS, no cable. And... Um, we're watching uh, our, our local NBC affiliate. They're showing the riot during the day on 6 o'clock news or whatever. There's Matt Cole sitting in the studio with, with the, uh, the anchor. Hmm. I even saw myself walk by on some of the footage. Um, anyway, he's saying, you see, you see, it's the blacks and the Jews who are, who are destroying the place. They're the ones turning over the police cars and breaking out windows. You don't see Nazis doing that, you know? I'm watching this. And then it dawned on me, because I, I didn't know why would Matt Cole have his national, even though he's headquartered in Washington, D.C., why would he have his national recruitment rally for the American Nazi Party in Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is two-thirds black. There are no black people in Washington, D.C. who want to be recruited into the, into the national, I mean, into the American Nazi Party. And there are no Jews in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else that I know who want to be recruited into the uh, Nazi party. So why D.C.? When I saw that footage, it clicked. I realized, that's a smart guy. You know, he's wrong, but he's a smart guy. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. He held the rally in D.C. because he knew this would happen. He knew a riot would happen. And he knew all the news, CBS, ABC, NBC would be there. And he could get that footage. He takes that footage. He goes out to the, to the Pacific Northwest and shows that footage out there. It says, you see what's going on in our nation's capital? The Jews and the blacks are taking over. Zog is taking over. Zog is a, a white supremacist acronym, Z-O-G. It stands for uh, Zionist Occupied Government. Okay, look it up. And... Um, you know, Zog is taking over. This country is being run by Zog. Come join us. We're going to take our country back. He shows that footage. And guess what? He brings in a lot of people. Sure enough, it's a recruitment tool. It's a propaganda. Smart guy. And the Klan would do the same thing later on. So I realized what he was doing. Anyway, um, uh, Matt Cole passed away, I think, back in 2013. He was still, you know, doing that crazy stuff. Martin Kerr, his right-hand guy, 
uh, he was he was in Charlottesville that day of the of the big white supremacist rally. Anyway, uh, so I learned I learned that you know that, and I so I began to understand how they do things. Well, um, then uh, country music had made a resurgence, and uh, I I got involved in playing with um, country bands, and one time I was up in Frederick, Maryland. And I went to this all-night restaurant to get something to eat after a gig. And when I pulled into the, into the parking lot, I saw a scene. This is like about, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning. There was, a man, there was a woman lying on the sidewalk on her back right outside the restaurant. And there was a man straddled on, on, sitting on her stomach. And he was banging her head into the sidewalk and hitting her in the face with his hand. And there are about four or five other guys standing around watching this. These, these are all white people. They were watching him do this. Nobody was calling the police that I could see. And, uh, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. Um, but there were phone booths right there. It's, it's a truck stop. And um, they're standing there watching. I parked... I don't know, maybe 20 feet away, 30 feet away. And when I got out of the car and closed my door, I guess it jarred the guy who was on top of the woman. He like looked up and he saw me standing there looking at him because I could never come over there. And he says, what the fuck are you looking at? You want a piece of me, nigger? To me, that was open invitation. So I said, yeah. And he got up off of her and he came at me. And I beat the daylights out of him. I heard him, and he went down. At that point, one of the guys, or two of them, whatever, in that group that were watching, they ran inside the, the door right there where all the phone booths were and called the police. So they're not going to call the police on this guy beating the daylights out of this woman. But when a black guy beats the daylights out of him, they go call the police. These two Frederick County police officers show up. Right. And, um, you know, I wanted this guy arrested. I did not get hurt, but I wanted him arrested for assaulting me. And um, they wouldn't arrest him. They told me to stand over here and they pulled him over there and they're talking to him, these two cops. Something was was not right. I could not put my finger on it, but something was not right. I, I felt it. I could see it. And I didn't know what it was. But. They told him that he needed to leave the property. And if he were to set foot on the property within 24 hours, they would have to arrest him for trespassing. And they sent him away. Um, I'm like, I want his information. Right? Because they, they were not going to arrest What they told me was, well, we didn't see him assault you. You know, I said, what difference does that make? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing charges. Well, we can't arrest him. I said, well, I want his information. So they had to give me his information. Hmm. Right? So he left. Um, I went inside the restaurant. I got some ice and a towel. I put it on the lady's head, put it on her face, helped her out. I said, listen, you know, if, if you, know, you want to go to court against this guy, I, I got his information. She said, well, I know who he is. Hmm. And I said, okay. I said, well, if you, know, if you want me to be a witness for you, I'll be happy to. And you can be a witness for me that he tried to assault me. She says, uh, yeah, that'd be great. 
So we exchange phone numbers. All right. So then, um, you know, if you want somebody arrested and the police are not going to do it, you have to go to the police station to the commissioner and swear out, you know, a, a complaint or whatever, right? So I go down to the police station. I, I don't even go inside the restaurant to eat. I'm so, you know, angry with these cops. So I go down to, the, to their station. I want to see the commissioner. So by, by now it's like, you know, one thirty, quarter of two in the morning. So he gives me the thing to fill out to get this guy arrested. And I have all the information, wrote down what happened. And so I'm saying to the guy, um, how long before this thing will be served on him? And you know, it's, a, it's a subpoena, whatever, summons. And he says, uh, well, probably two or three days. You know, I sign it, send it down to the sheriff's office. And then one of the deputies goes out and, um, and, and serves him. You know, we process it right here. I said, okay. And so I'm continuing filling it out. And he goes, oh, and then I looked up and through the plate glass window, which was, you know, we were inside his office. He had like a window. Here comes the guy that I beat up. Here he comes inside the police station in handcuffs with two Maryland state troopers. Not the county cops, two Maryland state troopers. One on either side of him holding his arms and he's handcuffed behind his back. I said, that's him right there. I said, that's the guy right there. And the commissioner says, sign the paper. I'll sign it and I'll serve him right now. <laughs> so I said, okay. I signed it. He signed it. He walks out there, rolls up the thing and sticks it in between the guy's arms. Says, you've been served. So he talks to the, to the troopers and everything. They lead the guy on into processing or whatever. And he's going to jail for something. I didn't know what would happen. He talked to the commissioner. I mean, they talked to the commissioner. Then he comes back in. I said, what's going on? Well, what happened was this dude, he, after he left and the cops left, he came back to the restaurant looking for me because he was going to settle the score. And he walks into the restaurant, couldn't find me, find some other black guy and start some stuff. And so the police get called. This time, the the uh, the uh, state police they they got they, they heard the the call or whatever. They got there before the county or whatever. State police don't play. They you know county police you know they they, they play. So anyway, these state police you know they don't know this guy. They don't care about this guy. They lock it. You know they they arrest him, take him out. So they take him to the jail at the police station, holding cell. So then. Um, a couple months later is the trial date, the hearing date. That's a story in itself, um, which I won't go into a whole lot. Of, I'll just skip ahead. Uh, I went down and picked up the lady. And on the way to the courthouse, she's telling me that that uh, was her ex-fiance. That's how she knows him. And she had dumped him because he was seeing somebody else. And he had gotten this girl pregnant, the other mm-hmm. girl. And um, she also told me that he was a firefighter. He was a fireman in the county fire department. That explained it to me. What I saw was weird. Of course the cops knew him. That's why they let him go. I didn't understand that. You know, we, you know fire, firefighters and, and police officers, they often respond to the same situations, right? So they're giving him a break, saying, you know, you know leave or we're going to have to arrest you. you know, they knew each other. And he was a lieutenant on the on the on the county fire department. Then she tells me he's a Klansman. <laughs> so I beat up this Klansman. I didn't care. I mean, I didn't care if he's a Klansman or not. All I knew was he was beating up a woman. You know, the fact that he's a firefighter, the fact that he's a Klansman meant nothing to me. 
you know, what you're doing is wrong. And so, you know, we got to court, long story short, um, the, you know, the judge ruled in favor of me. And um, I mean, I, I I'd not been charged with anything, but um, he had um, uh, torn uh, my leather coat <laughs> when, he, when he grabbed me and I, and I got it fixed. But uh, but the judge awarded me the, the price of the whole coat, which was like just under 500 bucks was a full length leather coat. <laughs> and um, and his fiance was there, his new fiance. When he saw me walk in with his ex-fiance, he like turned beet red. Uh, and sh- the new fiance knew nothing about what he had done. What uh, his attorney said uh, to, to, to the judge, your honor, um, you know, my client was uh, celebrating. Uh, he, he got promoted from sergeant to lieutenant on the county police force. He was celebrating and he had a little too much to drink. And he mouthed off to Mr. Davis. And then an altercation ensued, and so he's 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 really really sorry, and he said nothing about him beating up this woman. And so when I spoke, I told what happened, which was totally left out by the attorney. The new fiance knew nothing about that. He was still trying because what he was beating her up for was he still wanted to see her. Yeah, he wanted his cake and eat it too, and she the new one didn't know this. She got pissed. She, she had her sweater that was sitting beside him, I mean, beside her on the bench, because he's, he's up there at the table. She picked it up and threw it at him and walked out of the courtroom, right? And so uh, the old fiance, she gets up with me and, and confirms what I was saying. And so the judge like went off on this guy, you know, and made him pay me uh, this money, told him, do not contact me directly to give the money to his attorney and then the attorney will send it to me. That way, there's no, yeah. you know, contention. So that was my, you know, my my, my first experience in a nutshell with a, with a, with a KKK person. Uh, but then my next experience was was uh, was a lot better. Um, same area. I'm inside the the a lounge called the Silver Dollar Lounge, which is where a lot of Klansmen would hang out. And I, I didn't know that at the time, but um, I played with this country band and. Um, my first time in there, and it was, it was an all-white lounge. Uh, blacks were allowed in, but they didn't go in because they, they knew the reputation. I didn't know it at the time. And, uh, in, and even if I did, I'd probably still go in. You know, that's just how I am. And uh, anyway, this guy approached me on the break, and um, he, he, he was like really excited about the music and the band. He was enjoying himself, and he says... You know, that he'd seen the band before, but he'd never seen me before. Where did I come from? I said, yeah, the band has played here, but I just joined them recently, you know, my first time here. He says, man, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I you know, I was like, you look at this guy like, what? You know, um, doesn't he know the black origin of that style of music? And apparently he didn't. And I informed him, and he's like... No, no, Jerry Lee invented that. Man, I never heard no black man play like that, except for you. Uh, so I, I assured him. I said, look, man, Jerry Lee Lewis is a good friend of mine. I know him personally. I said, he's told me himself, the people who've influenced him and people he's seen and got that boogie-woogie feel from. Nah, yeah, he, he didn't believe that either. You know, Jerry Lee didn't get into any black people. But he was so fascinated, he, he, he wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink alcohol. I never did. But I went back to his table, and I got a cranberry juice. He paid the waitress. He, like, cheers me, clinks my glass with his. And he says, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. 
And now I'm completely mystified. Again, you get you got to remember my background. I've been around people from all over the world. You know, I, I've never just been with one group of people my whole life. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's at least a decade and a half older than me. He's never sat down before the black guy? How, how can this be? Because I sat down with every shade of color in the world. And I asked him, I said, why? He didn't answer me. I asked him again. He like looked down at the tabletop, just, you know, I, like he's hiding some secret. And his buddy, who's sitting next to him, like elbowed him. He said, tell him, tell him. And I'm like looking at both of them like, yeah, now, what's this mystery? You know, tell me. And he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I started laughing. I just busted out laughing. Because my only experience with the Klansmen had been the one that I beat up. Yeah. Right? Number one. And, you know, that was my only personal experience. I knew a lot about the Klan because I've got every book written on the Klan. I've read them all. I know the mentality. And I know they don't just come up and put their arm around you and praise your piano playing and want to hang out and buy you a drink. It doesn't work that way. So I figured, you know, this dude is making a joke. It, you know, it's funny, you know. I'm laughing. And he goes inside his pocket and pulls out his billfold and flips through. And he handed me his clan membership card. I looked at this thing. I recognized the clan insignia. And I stopped laughing. This thing was for real. And I gave it back to him. And now I'm sitting there wondering, my, my mind is racing like, what the hell am I doing sitting at a table you know, with, with a clan member? But the dude was friendly. He was very nice, very friendly, very complimentary, ignorant, yeah. But um, you know, I, 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 I didn't feel threatened or anything like that. So I, you know, I continued sitting there, and we talked. We talked about the clan and different things. He gave me his phone number wanted me to um, call him whenever I came back to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning Klansmen and Klanswomen, to see, as he referred to me, the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. So I said, okay, I'll call you. And I called him every six weeks. We were on a rotation with other bands. I called him in midweek, Wednesday or Thursday, and said, hey, man, you know we're going to be down at the Silver Dollar. Come on out. He'd come out both nights, Friday and Saturday. He'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen with him. And they'd gather around near the stage and watch me play with the band. And they'd get out on the dance floor. They'd dance, carry on. And on the break, I'd make my way over to his table, say hello. Some of them would hang there because, you know, they were curious about me as well. They wanted to meet me and talk to me. Others would see me coming, and they'd get up from their chairs and move to the other side of the room. So it was implied that, uh, you know, they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to touch me, shake my hand. You know, all they wanted to do was just, you know, observe me, which was fine. So, you know, this went on until the end of that year. And uh, I quit that. You know, I call him every six weeks, you know, to, hey, man, we, you know, we're going to be there. Come on out. he come. And so I quit that band around the end of the year. And I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and other genres of music. So I lost touch with him. I really had no reason to stay in contact with the clan, right? And, uh... It dawned on me a long time later, Daryl, the answer to your question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, 
it fell right into your lap and you didn't even realize it. Who better to ask that question of to get an answer than ask somebody who would go so far as to join an organization whose whole premise is practicing hating people who don't look like you, or who don't look like them, and who don't believe as they do. Get back in contact with that Klansman, you know? Interview him. Get him to fix you up with the leader of the Klan from Maryland, and then travel up north, travel down south, travel to Midwest, west, and interview other Klan leaders and members, and write a book. Because no book had been written by a, a black author on the Ku Klux Klan. Hmm from the perspective of sitting down face-to-face interviewing them. There had been two books written by black authors that dealt with the Klan. Each author detailed how he escaped a lynching, one in the 1930s and one in the 1940s, but not from the perspective of sitting down interviewing their would-be lynchers. So your book will be the first book written. There it is there. Mm. Um, So I decided that's what I would do. So I, um, I had to hunt around. It had been a long time since I called that guy to find his number. I found his number on, on a piece of paper, you know, where I'd written it or where he'd given it to me. And I called. And the number had been disconnected. So, you know, like I said, you know, it'd been a long time since I'd seen him. And I, I had to track him down. And um, I found out that he had moved. He didn't have a phone. But he had an address. So I decided I'm going to go over to his place and knock on his door. I had no way of letting him know that I was coming. He had no phone, right? (laughs) (laughs) So one evening, I went by there, knock, knock, knock on the door, his apartment. And um, he opens the door. And he sees me. He goes, Carol, you know, know, what are you doing here? And he stepped out of his apartment into the hallway and looks up and down the hallway as though he's looking to see if I brought anybody with me or something. Well, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So now I'm inside, just inside his apartment. He turns around, comes back in. He goes, well, what's going on, man? Are you still playing? What's going on? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But I need need to talk to you about the Klan. He says, the Klan? I said, yeah, you remember, right? He goes, well, you know I was. I said, was? He he, He said, yeah, I quit. And he went went into this long story as to why he quit the Klan. He wasn't quite accurate in his story, but I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, Yes, he he was out of the Klan now, but it wasn't that he had quit. He got kicked out. I found that out later on. Anyway, I said, well, (coughs) where's all your Klan stuff? And he says, what do you mean my Klan stuff, my Robin Hood? I said, yeah. He says, well, they came and got it. I said, what do you mean they came and got it? Don't you own your Robin Hood? He, uh, he explained to me, which I later found out to be true. When you join the Klan, um, you can pay for your Robin Hood and your, your handbook and all, all these other things. You, you can pay for them you know, total up front, and they're yours to keep. If you don't have enough money, you can still take the stuff, the Robin Hood and whatever else, but you, you pay them off. You add a little extra money in every time you pay your dues until it's paid off. So he had not paid off his Robin Hood. And so they came and repoed it. And so, but he tells me that when they came to get it, 
he could not find the mask that covers the face that attaches to the hood. And he has since found it, and he needed to return it. I said, well, let me see it. He went down the hallway in his, in his apartment, and he comes back and hands me this mask. I'm looking at this thing, and I said, listen, you know Roger Kelly? Yeah, I know Roger. Roger was my grand dragon. Grand dragon means state leader. Imperial wizard means national leader. So in, in regular, regular talk like you and I would do, um, we call our national leader the president yeah. who oversees all our states. Uh, they call that person the imperial wizard. Anybody who is prefixed with the term imperial means that person is a, is a national officer. Uh, wizard is the highest officer. So imperial national president. Um, an imperial clalith will be like a vice president. All right, and then you have secretary, treasurer, et cetera. They all have these names. Um, then under that, you have the next highest would be a state leader. We call state leaders governors. They call that the grand dragon. Anybody who is on the grand level means they're on the state level, state officer. Dragon being the highest in the state. Hmm. A grand clalith would be like a lieutenant governor. Yep. And then secretary, treasurer, et cetera, at the state level. Grand this, grand that, et cetera. Within the state, you have counties. Um, some states call it uh, the, um, or, or some counties call it the county manager or the county executive or whatever. Uh, they call that person the great titan. Anybody on the great level is on the county level. Hmm. Within the county, you have districts. Uh, we call those leaders um, councilmen, mayors, aldermen, selectmen, things like that. They hmm. call them the exalted cyclops. And then below the cyclops is just rank and file playing clan, clan members, playing white robe. Uh, these different ones have different colors on their robe, designate their rank. So anyway, this guy, Roger Kelly, was a, was a state leader for Maryland. Grand Dragon. Yeah, I know, Roger. Roger was my Grand Dragon. I said, well, listen, man, I need you to fix me up with Mr. Kelly. Uh, I want to I wanna interview him for a book I'm going to write. I want to start with him, then I'm going to travel around the country interview other Klan people. I can't do that, Daryl. I said, why not, man? You're not in the Klan anymore. You know, you won't get in trouble. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. I can't take, take a black man to, to the Grand Dragon. <laughs> I said, well, look. You, I still had this, this uh, mask in my hand. I said, look, you say you need to return this mask, right? Yeah. I said, give me Roger's um, phone number and, uh, and uh, address. I'll go to his house and I'll return it for you. He snatched that thing right out of my hand. He said, no way. I had to beg and plead with him for about 15 minutes before he finally gave me Mr. Kelly's phone number and, um, and uh, uh, address. He, he made me promise that I would not tell Mr. Kelly where I got his information, hmm. but he was, not, he was not gonna let me take the hood, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean the mask. And he says, listen, Daryl, please don't go to Roger Kelly's house. Roger Kelly will kill you. I mean, this guy was genuinely concerned about my safety. I mean, he, he liked me for whatever reason. And uh, anyway, um, I said, okay, you know, I won't tell him where I got it. So then he says, you know, if you really want to see Roger and the Klan, there's a bar up in Frederick. And he says, it's a Klan bar. Now, not many of the Klan owns it, but it's where they hang out, up in Thurmont, Maryland. Thurmont is in Frederick County. <laughs> and now, you know Thurmont. You don't know it for the Klan, though, but you know it because it's the home of Camp David, the presidential retreat. <laughs> but it's also one of the headquarters for the Klan. <laughs> 
Thurmont is an all-white town, no black people. And anytime a black family moved there, mysteriously, a cross got burned in their yard. Or a gay couple, something like that, cross got, or an interracial couple, cross. Right? They'd move out. Now, that's not to say that every white person in Thurmont is in the Klan, because they're not. Most white people in Thurmont do not like the Klan. They want the Klan out of there, because they're ruining the reputation of the town. Yeah. Right? But that happened to be one of their headquarters. So anyway, uh, he tells me about this bar up in Thurmont where the Klan hangs out in Frederick County. He says they're there every Saturday night unless they're out of town at a rally or something. And he says, you know, when you, he says you're safer to try to approach him on public property than go to his home. I said, okay. So he draws me, I, you know, he drew me a little map how to get there. And he says, when you first walk in, there'll be a row of booths off to the left. And uh, the, the, the two booths closest to the door, the first two booths, closest to the door where you walk in, are reserved for the Klan. And that's where you'll see, you know, Roger and, and other Klan people congregating around that area, you know, if, you know, if, if they're there on that Saturday night, uh, unless they're out of town. I said, okay. So um, I didn't have any Saturdays. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a full-time musician, so I'm working during the week, weekends, you know. I, I knew I had a few Sundays off. So I called my secretary, she books the band, and I said, listen, you know, do I have any Sundays off? I'm telling her what I'm up, what I'm up to. She goes, yeah, you got this Sunday off, that Sunday, whatever. I said, okay, I figure, well, Sunday's still part of the weekend. Maybe I might find some, maybe even Roger Kelly or some remnants of the Klan on a Sunday. Mm. I knew I couldn't do it on a Saturday. I'm working, I'm playing. So she wants to go with me, and she's white. I said, no. And, oh, come on, Daryl, I want to go. And you know, she's always looking for action, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, you know there's going to be action for a black man to walk into a clan bar with a white woman. You're definitely going to find some action. So I, I, I did not want her to go for her safety, you know, especially. But she was very insistent. So I said, okay, you know, you can come, but you're coming at your own risk. She said, all right. So we set up the Sunday. We drove up to Frederick. I followed my guy's little map. And sure enough, boom, there it was, right where you said it. And we parked across the street, and we're sitting in my car looking at this place. And they're like four or five little steps onto a little stoop, and then the door, you go in. I'm trying to figure out now, how does a black man walk into a Klan bar with a white woman? You know? None of my books talk about this, so there's no you know, procedure. And so I said, okay, listen, I'm going to walk in first. I want you to walk in right behind me. But if I turn around and face you, start running, and I'll be behind you. She says, all right. So we got out, locked the car. We walk up there. She's behind me. I walk up the steps. I open the door, and I walk right in. And she walks right in behind me. Now we're standing in the middle of this place. First thing I see on the back wall is this big Confederate flag. And on my right is this long wooden bar. And behind the bar is this mirror. And scotch taped to the mirror is a picture of Roger Kelly and an article from, from a newspaper from the Washington Post. I recognized it because I had the same article. You know, I was collecting all that stuff for, you know, my, my research. So somebody had cut out this article and posted it on the mirror. So I knew I was in the right place, right? Or the wrong place, depending on how you want to look at it. 
<laughs> and uh, over here to the left, just as the guy said, was were, were the row of booths, and there was nobody in um, the first two booths. It was, it, they were, both were empty. There was nobody in any other other booths. This is about seven thirty on a Sunday evening. There were only, I would say, maybe six or seven people in the whole place. The bartender, a couple of people sitting at the bar, a couple of people playing pool or something in the back, a couple of people just milling around. So she and I are just standing in the middle of this place, looking out of place and looking stupid, basically. You know, and I'm, I'm not looking at everybody. I knew what Roger Kelly looked like. I never met him, but I knew I've seen him on TV. I've seen, I've seen him in the paper, you know, and wherever else. Um, but I never met him. So I'm looking to see if any one of these people is him. None of them were him. But that did not mean that one of them couldn't be a Klan person. I mean, they all were white. And, but again, not everybody in Thermot is in the Klan. So I don't know any, any uh, Klan people. I mean, I didn't see the guy that I beat up, you know, so he wasn't in there that night. Um, but anyway, um, I didn't see Roger Kelly. But I drove you know, a good distance to get up there. I didn't want to leave empty-handed. But I didn't want to just go up to somebody and say, hey, excuse me, sir, are you in the Klan? <laughs> you know? So I said to Mary, I said, come on, let's go over there and sit in one of those booths. Because if the Klan is in here, they'll come to us to get us out of their booth, right? So, and then, you know, when, when they come to us, then we can ask about, you know, Mr. Kelly. So we went over there and we sat down in the, in the first booth. And nobody bothered us, you know, no problem whatsoever. And um, so, you know, we weren't, I, I, was, I was, you know, striking out. So I said, come on, you know, let's go sit over at the bar. We'll just chat up somebody sitting there. So we went outside at the bar, and I chatted up the guy sitting next to me. You know, I, I was asking him where the highway was, you know. I was kind of like I was lost looking for some directions. Now, I wasn't going to say anything about the Klan until, you know, unless he acted negatively or something, then I would bring it up. Um, but he was very nice, you know, gave me directions to where I needed to go. You know, not, not that I, I didn't know. And um, we left. So <coughs> I failed in my mission to uh, find Roger Kelly that night. Next day is Monday. Mary worked out of my house here. And um, so she came here. Um, I said, here, this is uh, Roger Kelly's number. Give him a call. Ask him if he would consent to sitting down. Tell, her, t tell him your boss is writing a, an, a, a book on the Klan, would he consent to sitting down and giving him an interview? However, do not tell him that I'm black. If he asks, don't lie to him, mm. but don't, don't allude to it, don't give him reason to ask. Yeah. Now the reason why uh, I did not want him to know, two reasons, one, um, I figured you know, that based upon what this other guy told me, you know, Roger Kelly would kill me if I went to his house or whatever, obviously he doesn't like black people, um, that if he knew that I was black, he wouldn't give me the interview. Uh, number two, I, I could have called him myself because I'm the one who had the phone number, but uh, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black, right? And say, I'm not talking to you. Click, hang up the phone. But I knew that he would know that Mary is white by her voice. Yeah. And he would not automatically assume that this white woman works for a black man. I know the mentality. And especially a black man who's writing a book on the Klan because they don't exist. So I was the first one. And so that would up my chances of him saying yes. So if he agrees to do the interview, then he'd figure out that I'm black when he sees me. I want, I want him to see me face to face yeah. and then tell me, no, I'm not gonna talk to you and walk away or whatever. So she understood. 
So she called him. He didn't ask what color I was. And he agreed to do the interview. He even invited us to his house. But that day, something, uh, well, I knew something was, was going to change that day. So I, I had to reschedule it. And I said, listen, let's not go to his house. Let's, let's make it in a, in a neutral uh, location. You know, and she said, okay. So I decided to do it in the motel above the Silver Dollar Lounge. The mm-hmm. lounge was in the bottom of this motel. So Mary and I got the room several hours in advance of, of the appointment. And uh, I gave her some money to go down the hallway and get soda pop out of the machine and put it in this ice bucket you know, that's in the room, fill it with ice, get it all cold. Because, you know, I did not know what Mr. Kelly was going to do when he saw me. Would he turn around and walk away? Would he attack me? Would he come in the room and do the interview? Those are the three options, right? Uh, but I knew what I was going to do. I was going to be hospitable. I was going to offer my guest a cold beverage, a cold soda. So I got a variety of soda and uh, got it all cold, set the thing on the dresser, and um, we waited. Right on time at 5.15, it was on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, there was a knock on the door. And the room is, is just happens to be designed that if you're standing in the hallway, you cannot see who's inside the room. You have to come in the room, go around the corner, and then there's the room, right? So cause as soon as you walk in the door, the bathroom was right there to the left. And then there's a wall. You got to go around the wall and there's a room. So I took the lamp table, put it in this far obscure corner of the room, took off the lamp. I put a chair on one side for Mr. Kelly, a chair on this side for me. And I had a black canvas bag beside my, my chair leg. And in my bag, I had a cassette recorder, which I put on in the center of the table, all in hopes that A, he would come in and give me the interview and B, that he would allow me to record it. And, uh, and I had some blank cassettes and I had uh, a copy of the Bible because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization. And they believe that the Bible preaches racial separation. And they'll show you chapter and verse where it says it, right? According to them. And so uh, I'm all prepared. So Mary, you know, knocking the door, Mary hops up, runs around the corner, opens the door. In walks official title, Grand Nighthawk. Grand means state, Nighthawk means bodyguard, security, in clan terminology. So Grand Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Grand Dragon, like Imperial Nighthawk is the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. In walks this Grand Nighthawk. He's wearing military camouflage. Got that clan patch on his chest, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. Over here are the letters KKK. Embroidered on his cap, it said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And he has a semi-automatic handgun and a holster on his side. He comes in, he walks around the corner, and sees me at the table. He just freezes. Well, Mr. Kelly is walking right behind him, I mean right behind him, in a dark blue suit and tie, carrying a briefcase. And um, he did not realize that this guy had stopped. So he turned the corner, the guy was stopped right there. Mr. Kelly... (laughs) knocked into his back, like knocked him forward. So now they both are stumbling around, tripping around, trying to regain their balance. And they're like looking all around the room. And I'm just sitting there at the table, you know, looking at them. And I could read their faces. I knew what was going on. There was a lot of apprehension. I, I could tell what they were, I mean, they, they were thinking out loud on their faces. Yeah. They were thinking, did the receptionist give us the wrong room number? Did we misunderstand something? Or was this an ambush? 
So I stood up and I displayed both my palms like this to show I had nothing in my hands. And I walked towards Mr. Kelly and I put out my right hand and I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, I'm Daryl Davis. And he shook my hand. And the Nighthawk, the Nighthawk was actually wearing gloves. He pulled off his gloves and shook my hand. And so, so far, so good. I said, come on in, please, come on in. Have a seat. Mr. Kelly sat down, and the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right. And before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly says, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? I said, sure. Went inside, pulled out my wallet, gave him my driver's license. He started looking at it, he goes, oh, you live on such and such street. Now I'm wondering, why is he looking at my address? You know, is he going to come burn across in my lawn? I mean, what's up? Hey, I didn't say that. But that's what I'm thinking, right? So, you know, that was a little unsettling when all he has to do is look at my picture on my license and my name and look at me and match it up, right? And give me back my license. So I did not want to let him know that he unsettled me a little bit. But I want to let him know under no circumstances was he to come here with, you know, nefarious intentions, right? And so I said to him, I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at, and I named his house number and his street. So that way he knew I knew where he lived. So I was implying, I was leveling the playing field, yeah. right? I was implying, you know, if you come visit me, I might come visit you. So we're going to confine all this visiting to this motel room, right? He smiled, he nodded his head like he understood. I did not find out until months later that I had no reason to, to um, I was being presumptuous. I had no reason to, to fear him doing anything stupid. Um, he simply recognized my street name because one of his members lived right down the road here. <laughs> the, the street is, is a bit of a long street. It goes to that neighborhood and then the next neighborhood. And his, his a member lived in the next neighborhood, <laughs> same street. <laughs> uh, or not, not the same street, but Mr. Kelly had to go down this street to get to the house. So he just recognized the street, pure coincidence. But I had no way of knowing that at the time. So anyway, that member is in a federal prison now um, for, for committing a hate crime. He's there for a long time. Anyway, uh, we got on with this interview. And um, every time uh, Mr. Kelly would say, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, I'd reach down in my bag, pull out my Bible, and hand it to him to show me I want to see chapter and verse, because that's not my understanding or my interpretation of what it says. He'd find the chapter and verse, and uh, or my 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 recorder uh, runs out of out of cassette tape. I reach down and get a fresh tape. Every time I reach down, the bodyguard, the Nighthawk, would reach up and put his hand on the butt of the gun. He never pulled it out. He you know he had his hand on the handle, and you know that didn't really phase me because I mean I I understood what he was doing. I mean that's his job. His jo his job is to protect his boss. I'm the enemy. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what's in my bag. So he's doing what he has to do. I got that. I was fine with it. After a little while, maybe 45 minutes, an hour or so, because I was going in and out of the bag, he realized there was uh, nothing in the bag of, you know, of threat. So he relaxed. I went in and out of the bag. Bodyguard didn't move. He, he didn't do this stuff anymore. Hmm. A little over an hour into this interview, Mr. Kelly and I are talking, and he and I are closer than you and I are right now. I mean, the table is just a small table, a lamp table, like this. 
And we're sitting right there, and he's the bodyguard standing there, and, he, and he, Roger Kelly's sitting right there. And um, we're just talking, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, a very fast, very quick, short noise just happened. Like a, that was it. Just that quick and gone. But there was no reason for it, and I didn't know what it was. It happened so fast and was so, and didn't last long that my ear could not discern what it was. And almost instantly, I flew up out of my chair because I was going to attack him. I mean, in that split second, um, because my, my, my ear could not identify it, um, I feared for my safety. Yeah. I feared for my life. And when you fear for your life, you go into what is called survival mode. And there, there are only a handful of things you can do in survival mode. Some people, they think, they pass out because the fear is so great, the brain cannot process it and the brain shuts down and you, you fall out, you pass out, you faint. Um, I don't do that. Other people, their muscles will, will constrict and they'll, they'll ball up and they'll tighten and they can't move. They're frozen like this. You've seen people get into a fight and they curl up into a fetal position. People are kicking them, punching them, and they're not even deflecting the blows. You know, they're shaking like that. They can't move. That's called paralysis by fear. I don't do that either. Another thing people will do is to run away. That's exactly what I would have done had it been an option. And that is your best option. You know, if something is scaring the daylights out of you and you fear for your life, then separate yourself from it. Get as far away from it as you can. Run, take off, go somewhere. Um, that was not an option. I mean, that, that, like I said, that would have been my choice, but that was not an option for me because how do you outrun a bullet in a motel room? I, I'm not armed. My secretary is not armed, right? The only person who I know for sure is armed is the Nighthawk. I see his gun. I don't know if Mr. Kelly has a, a gun up under his suit jacket or not. All I know is I'm not armed. This man has an arm. So, you know, I'm not going to run and get shot in the back or something, right? The last option is to do a preemptive strike. Hmm. Get them before they get you. And that's what I was going to do. When I came up out of my chair, I was going to dive across that table, grab the Nighthawk, grab Mr. Kelly, and slam them down to the ground and take away the Nighthawk's gun. So I would immobilize or neutralize the situation. I'd be in charge, right? I came up, I put my hands on the table, and I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. I didn't say a word. I mean, my eyes were speaking loud and clear. I knew he could read my eyes. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? He didn't say a word to me, but I could read his eyes. His eyes were saying the same thing to me. What did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking at both of us like, what did either one of y'all just do? Now, Mary, she was sitting on top of the dresser because there were no more chairs in the room. And she realized what had happened. And she began explaining it to us when it happened again. And what it was, and we all busted out laughing, burst out laughing. The ice in the ice bucket next to Mary had begun melting and the cans of soda were falling down the ice. That was it, yeah. you know? But we were so hyper-focused on each other that 
we totally forgot about anything over there. You know, so that noise was like, it's like hearing a pin drop in, you know, and it just shocked us. And um, when we realized what had happened, we all began laughing. This, there were, there were like two teaching moments. The learning would come later, but these were teaching moments. The learning moments would come later. Um, the first teaching moment would be that we all were human beings in that moment that we heard the noise. Fear is a, you know, is, is, is a human emotion. We felt the same emotion. We felt fear of each other because each, each one of us thought the other person was doing something ominous, had posed a threat to one another, right? I didn't know what he was, what he was up to, making some weird noise I couldn't identify. He didn't know what I was up to. You know, was he under attack? I'm thinking, am I getting ready to be attacked? You know? And so, and the, of course, the bodyguard, you know, it's his job to protect his boss, my job to protect myself and my secretary. So we both felt fear in the same moment over the same thing. That humanized us. As soon as um, the fear was addressed and quelled, we both felt joy in that same moment. We even laughed at the same thing. We're on opposite sides of the fence, ideologically. He's the head of the clan. I'm a black guy. But yet we're laughing at the same thing and, and, and being relieved over the same thing because all it was was a damn ice cube melting. Hmm. Somebody almost got shot over an ice cube, right? I mean, we laugh at it now, but it wasn't funny at the time. I mean, it, it could have been a real, ser you know, a real serious thing. Um, so, So... We humanized one another um, in that we both felt fear. When the fear was addressed, we both felt relief and joy. What I learned, the second thing that I learned is um, ignorance breeds fear. We fear those things of which we're ignorant, those things we don't understand. All because this foreign entity of which we were ignorant, being the bucket of ice, cans of soda, entered into our little comfort zone at the table via the noise that it made, we became fearful of one another because we didn't know what it was. If that fear is not addressed, that fear will escalate to the next level, which is hatred, because we hate the things that frighten us. If the hatred is not addressed, it, in turn, escalates into anger. We become angry with the things that we hate, which turns into the next step, uh, destruction. <laughs> so ignorance breeds fear. Fear breeds hatred. Hatred breeds destruction. Um, that, chain, that whole chain almost unfolded to completion. Had I pounced across the table and hurt one of them, had the bodyguard drew his gun and shot one of us, meaning my secretary or me. It stopped just short of that last component, destruction. You did see exactly what I'm talking about on um, August 12th, four years ago, mm. 2017, at that white supremacist rally right down here in Charlottesville. On August 12th, there was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville. 
It escalated to a lot of hatred in Charlottesville all that day. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his vehicle and intentionally tried to murder as many counter-protesters as he could by driving that car full force into the crowd. He succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer with that, with that vehicle. And now he's spending life in prison. And you have spent your life or a large portion of your life trying to years. break that cycle, yeah. right? Trying, trying, trying to break the cycle of ignorance of the very people who, when you first meet them, avowedly hate you. And in my own research of you and knowing the little that I do about your own life, the principles that seem to guide your activity, your, your interest in meeting with these people is one, a belief that it all starts with ignorance, that that's the beginning. And that if you can break the ignorance, you've got a decent shot at breaking the other right. sequences. I feel that the destruction, the, um, the hatred and the fear are all byproducts, all symptoms of the ignorance. You know, the ignorance is the nucleus. That's the cancer. Uh, you know, if you cure that, all the other things don't materialize. And, and I feel that we spend way too much time uh, in this country addressing the byproducts, addressing those symptoms. The symptoms. Yeah. You know, it's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. Uh, you got to go down to the, if you get bone cancer, you don't put a Band-Aid on top or some topical cream. You got to go down to the bone and hit it with the radiation or the chemo or whatever. And you have gone directly to the source many, many times and have nucleus. been successful many, many times. Right. And I mean, you know, not everybody's going to change. Now, understand, uh, when you see my name in the media or whatever, um, they, they always get it wrong for some reason. It'll say, you know, black musician converts X number of white supremacists or KKK people. I always make it a point to say, no, I did not convert anybody. You know, I didn't even convert one person. But I am the impetus for over 200 white supremacists, KKK, neo-Nazi, alt-right, whatever, uh, or just the racist next door, to convert themselves. I give them reason to rethink that ideology. And they began converting themselves. Um, I never set out to convert anybody. Do I hope that they'll convert? Yes, absolutely. Because it, 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 it will better their lives and it will better the lives of other people, <laughs> right? But uh, my mission is not to tell them, hey, you need to get out of this thing. You know, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. I want, I want them to come to that conclusion themselves. So I provide them the tools and the, and the ideas and perceptions that they need to arrive at those uh, conclusions. And what are the tools, what are the strategies that you have used? I know you meet with a lot of people personally. You meet with them face-to-face, -face and you have long conversations with them. What are the strategies that you've seen in your own life with this experience that have worked? Okay. Um, several things. One learn as much as you can about your adversary now this goes with any adver uh, adversarial situation not just race in fact we can take race off the table uh, um there are tons of hot topics abortion nuclear weapons 
global warming, uh, the insurrection, the, the, the presidential election, whatever, all these hot topics, right? You're on one side, somebody else is on the other side. Learn as much as you can about the other side's position. How did they arrive there? Why did they arrive there? What, what is their premise for believing uh, you know, that? You know, be open-minded, you know, but know, know, who, know who you are, though. Know who you are, know your position, but be open-minded to hearing somebody else. Put, put yourself in their shoes, all right? So you have that one, number one. Do your homework. Um, number two, be willing to listen to things that you don't like, things that you may even find offensive, that you may find somebody attacking you for, you know, your skin color, your religion, your whatever, you know. Um, don't take it personally. Know, that's why I say know who you are, okay? Keep your ego behind you. Don't let it get in front of you because it will devolve the conversation. It'll become unproductive because they know how to push buttons. They know, you know what to say. You know, if you're Jewish, they know all kinds of stuff to get you going. If you're black, they know all kinds of stuff. If you're gay, you know, they do that all day long. You know, they're the experts at offending. So, you know, you're not going to phase them. And, and they expect you to push back. You know, you, know, if, you know, if they call you a nigger or a kike or, you know, a fag or, you know, whatever derogatory terms, you know, they want to call you. Um, you know, they know buttons to push. And then as soon as you start acting out on that, you, 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 you reinforce their belief. Yeah. Right. So know who you are. Keep your ego behind you. Because if you don't know who you are and you and you go into a room with them, they're going to tell you who you are, mm-hmm. and you might walk out believing them. So know who you are first, um, and understand something: they don't know you. They do not know you. So why are you letting them define who you are? They're meeting you for the first time. So why would I get mad? As somebody who's telling me I'm a criminal because I, I have black skin or I'm lazy because most black people are lazy or, or I'm dumb, I'm unintelligent because most black people are dumb you know, and they think black people have smaller brains than white people. Yeah. Is, is it offensive to hear that from somebody sitting across from me? Sure. Am I offended by it? No. And the reason why I'm not offended by it is because that person doesn't know me. He just met me. All he sees is this. And, and that determines my intelligence. It determines my, 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 my work ethic or, or my criminality. No. If my parents were telling me something like that, yeah, maybe I'd believe them because they raised me. They brought me into this world. But not somebody who just walked in my room. Why would I believe them? They're just spouting off. So keep the ego behind. Mm. Number two, okay? Number three, your credibility is your most important asset in any situation. All right. Somebody's credibility is their most important asset above and beyond all else. You only have one opportunity to make a good first impression. All right. If you're lucky, you may have a second or third opportunity to make an impression, but you only have one chance to make a good first impression. Most people will judge you, unfortunately, sometimes on their first impression of you. So when I meet with these people, they don't like me. I am not the object of their affection, right? Mm. You know, that's why they're in the clan. You know, they don't like black people. They don't like Jewish people. They don't like, you know, whatever. So they, so they go so far as to join an organization that practices not liking those people. 
So when they see me, their temperature goes up, their wall goes up, they're ready to radiate vitriol and, and, and put me in an inferior position and let me know that they're superior. That's why they're called supremacists, because mm-hmm. they think that they are supreme. And in order to establish supremacy, they must make you feel less than, right? So you're, you want to, you know, your first meeting, you're planting a seed. Nobody's going to change overnight, yeah. right? It may take repeat visits. And each time you come back, you've already planted the seed. You've got to water that seed. You've got to nurture it, feed it, you know, plant food or whatever you know, that makes it grow. So you need a repeat visit. Um, if you are credible, and they can tell if you're not credible. You know, you know when you're talking to somebody, if they're BSing you or whatever, you know, and they're not credible. If you are credible, even though they don't like you, that increases your chances of coming back. So they don't like me. And I say, hey, listen, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm credible. You know, I'm, I'm always transparent. I always, you know, um, I, I don't kiss anybody's rear end. You know, if I don't agree with something, I'll, I'll let them know I don't agree with it. But I'm not going to attack them. I say, well, this is my opinion. Or here's what I know to be a fact. You know? And if I present somebody with a fact, I'm going to tell them, this is a fact. And you can research it yourself to find out that, you know, that, that I'm, t- I'm giving you a fact. But if I have an opinion, I always let them know, listen, this is my opinion. This is what I think. I don't know to be factual. It's my opinion. So that way they're not holding me accountable for a fact. Mm. And if I'm wrong, correct me. Um, so now, even though they don't like me, and I say at the end of the interview, um, hey, listen, I appreciate the information you gave me. Um, you know, I want to take it home and process it. And, you know, can we get together again maybe in two weeks? Uh, I just wanted to do, do a little follow-up. Now, they don't like me, but I've been credible with them. Yeah, okay, that's cool. They'll get together with me again. But if they didn't like me, I mean, they don't like me already, but if I wasn't credible, they'd be like, nah, we're done. You know, you, I give you the interview, that's it. Yeah. It's just like, you know, if you, if you ask some girl out on a date, you don't know her. You know, you, first time you've met her in a bar, or met her at a party, whatever. You take her out. If you all had a good time, if she's impressed with you the first time, you say, hey, you know, can we get together again next week? Yeah, sure. You date her again. If she, if you did not impress her that first date, don't call her again, okay? Because <laughs> she, she's not going to be going out with you again. You know, she, she, she'll either make up an excuse and why, why she can't go out the next week or, nah, I, I'm not really interested. And that's it. You know, so your credibility is your biggest asset. So always be truthful, always be transparent, always be respectful. You don't have to respect what they're saying, but respect their right to say it. Something that I've learned, um, I've been to 57 different countries on six continents. Right? There are 195 in the world. And um, I met two guys in the last three months. One uh, as, as an American who's been to 125, and another one is uh, from Estonia, <laughs> and he's been to 160, so I'm kind of behind. Wow. Yeah, I'm kind of behind. But, um, but in the 57 that I've been to, and I told you 49 states, I've been exposed to enough vari- variety of cultures, religions, ethnicities, beliefs, all that kind of stuff that have taught me something. 
no matter how far I've gone from this country, right next door to Canada or Mexico or halfway around the world, no matter how different the people I encounter may be, they don't look like me, they don't speak my language, they don't worship as I do, I always conclude everyone I met was a human being. Hmm. All right? And as such, every human being basically wants the same five things in their lives. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. We all want to be heard, very important. We all want to be treated fairly. And we all want the same thing for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we employ those, um, those five core values, or even any of those five core values, in any culture or any society in which we might find ourselves unfamiliar, I will guarantee that your navigation in that culture or society will be a lot more smooth and a lot more positive. I just consider white supremacy to be another culture, yeah. you know? So I employ those values and, and they work. Now, does everybody change? No. There'll be those who will go to their grave being hateful and violent and racist. They're, they're, they will never change. But if somebody like that is willing to sit down and have a conversation, there is an opportunity to foster that possible change. Yeah. And I've had more success than I've had failures, you know. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Yeah. Nothing gets resolved without talking about it. Yeah. I know our time is coming to a close together and, and the name of this podcast is called Keep Talking and that, that's part of the idea as a cultural show is to bring up issues that are difficult in our culture to talk about them. And I, first of all, just want to say how much I admire the courage and the, the effort that you've put into your own work over the, the course of your adult life. I watched and then rewatched the documentary about you called Accidental Courtesy mm -hmm. in the last few days. And I, in closing, I would love to get your thoughts generally about America now and your suggestions for it. Perhaps you will reiterate what you just said in terms of the five basic core human needs that, that may be the North Star for us in, in continuing these conversations to make a, a, a better and more per, more perfect union. I remember in the documentary one of the scenes that stuck with me was you meeting with some activists in Baltimore and they were sitting down and the idea was that you, that, that you were going to speak with them to talk to them, some, some, some black activists in Baltimore who began hurling accusations at you that you were no better than people who were wearing a robe. Uh, they, they didn't see your attempts and your successes to change people uh, th that didn't seem to resonate with them. It wasn't something that they wanted to either hear or, or talk to you about. And it, it's becoming more common, it seems, in our culture to believe that it's impossible to overcome racism. You know, people are born racist and, and that that is a message that is more common than I remember hearing when I was a kid. I mean, I was born and raised on Martin Luther King speeches and that that's always been my North star of, of t treating people as individuals and as equals mm -hmm. under the law. 
where do we go from here in your perspective? Is it, is it continuing to emphasize the, hum, the humanity in all of us in, conver, in, in continued conversation among people who disagree with each other that we have to get back to that? What do you see as the, the guidepost, the North Star for, for us, for Americans to try to continue to improve our republic that we all live in? Okay. Uh, back to to that chain of events, you know. Well, let, let me tell you about that uh, that scene. Yeah. Um, that scene you saw about eight minutes in the movie, in the film, accidental courtesy. That actual scene went off about an hour, hmm. and it almost became physically violent, and you you could see it boiling to that point. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, like you said, you know, they they were focused on one thing, um, and did did not want to see anything else beyond that. However, uh, about a year later, they reached out to me and they'd been seeing me on TV or articles or whatever. And they were, you know, getting a better understanding of what I was doing. And they wanted to get together and have dinner hmm. and talk. Wow. And we got together up in Baltimore and we talked and um, we agreed to work together. They, they, had, they had a better understanding of what I do. And they realize that what I do is important, what they do is important, but is that we need to work together, not yeah. against each other, for the same goal, right? So we agreed to do that, and we started doing that. Um, the one guy, the older guy, uh, he, he, you know, who, who was like you know very vicious or whatever in the movie, uh, he and I got together a bunch of times, and then he began falling off the wagon. He reverted back to to where he was in the movie, so. He, he's he's back at that mindset now. Um, will he change again? I don't know. The younger guy, he seemed to change. He he got he his mind was opened up a little bit more. <laughs> uh, hopefully, he'll continue in that path. Um, I get you know now they they were uh, members of a Black Lives Matter Baltimore chapter. I want to make clear that they do not represent the entire Black Lives Matter movement. There are factions, you know, Black Lives Matter is not an organization as much as it is a movement. Um, the founders did not want to centralize and trademark the name. So anybody, you, me, anybody can go out and start our own Black Lives Matter movement and, and appoint ourselves president of this faction of Black Lives Matter. Um, you've got some factions that are all black, some that, are, that consists of black supremacists, some that are blacks and whites working together in the, in, in the Black Lives Matter faction, some that are predominantly white Black Lives Matter factions, all right? And, and that's fine. But the problem is they all are not on the same page. Yeah. Where if you had a centralized organization like the NAACP, the Boy Scouts of America, the Red Cross, those are centralized organizations with one headquarters, one president, policies created in the headquarters and disseminated to all the chapters around the country. That's not the case here. In this case, you've got all these factions, each one has its own little president, and some are aggressive, some are, you know, they want to run around town and spray paint graffiti and BLM all, all over walls and statues and this, that, and the other, and, and destroy stuff. Others, um, want to sit down with the state or city or county legislature and try to work out, you know, 
laws and bills to be passed to remove statues or do whatever. You know, they're more conscientious that way. Yeah. Um, some are aggressive, some are passive, whatever. So they're not all on the same page. But what happens is when the media uh, refers to them, they don't say um, the, uh, the Brooklyn chapter of Black Lives Matter or the Bronx chapter or the Sacramento chapter or the San Francisco chapter or the Austin or the Houston chapter. They just say Black Lives Matter. So if one chapter is doing good and another chapter is doing bad, you can't differentiate. They just say Black Lives Matter and everybody gets the brunt of whatever negative uh, negativity happened. So there have been about six different factions of Black Lives Matter. Uh, Detroit, uh, one in New York, one in Ohio, one in Mississippi, I forgot where the other ones are, that have contacted me and said, hey, uh, do you give workshops? Can you teach us to do what you do? And then there have been other ones that have just, you know, ripped me a new rear end because, you know, they don't agree. So, you know, they're all over the map. And while they have made a lot of accomplishments, they've also shot themselves in the foot by not being on the same page, by having too many chefs in, in, the, in the same kitchen mm. trying to do the same recipe. Yeah. Daryl, I've wanted to meet you for a long time, and I, I know you're a busy guy who's in high demand, and you have a lot going on in your life and your career. And I think I speak for a lot of people in this country in expressing gratitude and admiration for you and what you've done with your life. And um, uh, it in a time that seems, at least on the surface, like it's a divided country, I think you are and your work it speaks to the possibility of change, of people who have over time with enough conversation and removing ignorance and just focusing on our common humanity and ability for people to evolve and grow into better people. Um, I think that's something we all can get behind and, and work towards. Um, it's been a, an honor of mine and a pleasure to meet you today. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. My, my pleasure. My pleasure. And let me just say two more things here. Please. Um, the last thing that, that uh, another tool to put in the toolkit is this. You know, when you're meeting with an adversary, again, it doesn't matter what the topic is. I mean, today we're talking a lot about race, but it could be anything yeah. where, you, where you have, you know, opposite sides. Understand something. You cannot change somebody's reality, even if it's not real. It's their reality. It's all, people only know what they know, right? If they know something to be real in their mind, it's real. Um, one's perception is one's reality. Whatever they perceive becomes their reality, even if it's not accurate, all right? So, with that in mind, we spend a lot of time in this country trying to change somebody's reality. It's not going to work. Here's what you have to do. You have to offer them. Don't attack their reality. It's what they know. Even though you've seen different and you know what they know is not, is not accurate because they have not seen the things that you've seen. You can't make them see what they can't, you know, what, what, what they've never seen. What you do is you offer them a better perception, offer them better perspectives, because if they resonate with one of the perceptions that you've offered, they will change their own reality hmm. because their perception becomes their reality. Case in point, let's you, you said you have some brothers and stuff. Okay, so let's say you have a little brother, um, seven, eight years old, right? And he goes with um, his scout troop or his class or somebody, uh, his friend's parents, take him to a magic show. 
and you know the magician David Copperfield or whoever is on the stage and he asks for a lady female volunteer of course 50 women in the audience are going to raise their hands right and he looks around looks around you in, in, in the red blouse come on up lady hops up trots up on stage puts the microphone on her face and what's your name where are you from okay now what I want you to do is I want you to climb up on the step stool get in, into this into this box, this long box. Put your feet out the holes on that side and put your head out the hole at this end. Lady gets up, gets in the box, lies down, puts her feet out there, puts her head out this hole. Magician closes the lid. Then he takes a chainsaw and brrrr, all the way through the box. Chainsaw comes out the bottom of the box. To your seven or eight year old brother, he is aghast. This man has just cut this woman in half. He saw the chainsaw pass from the top of the box and come out the bottom. Hmm. And she was lying in there. And then he's telling you this. And you're like shaking your head. <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And then he, uh, he, he took the half of the feet and he moved that half of the box over to the left side of the stage and the, and the half of the head over to the stage right. And, and then he walked over and talked to the head. And, and the woman's head started talking back to him. And then he brought the two hands back together and opened the lid and she came out and there was no blood. And you're like, listen, it's an illusion. No, I, I saw it, I was there. You know, you weren't there, I saw it. He put the chainsaw right through the, you know, he's, he's going, the more you attack his reality, the more he's gonna defend it because he knows what he saw. Yeah. You did not see it. People only know what they know. He perceived that. His perception is his reality. That man cut that woman in half, and there's no telling him, telling him he did not see what he see, what he saw. That's his perception. So you are wasting your time trying to change his reality. What you do is you offer him a, a better um, perception. You say, look, is it possible that just maybe when he asked for volunteers and all those women raised their hand and he picked out that lady in the red top, you think maybe it's possible she might work for him? Maybe she knows the trick. She travels with him everywhere he goes and he planted her in the audience in that particular seat. She's always there, sitting basically in the same seat every show, wherever he goes around the country. And she knows the trick. And when she gets inside the box, there's already a pair of mannequin legs wearing the same stockings and same shoes that she has on, lying on the floor of the box. She takes them and sticks them out the holes. She brings her own feet and legs up under, up under her chest. So her whole body is on that side of the box. So when he cuts the box in half, that saw never even touches her. And then he separates the boxes. So the feet, the, the box, the side with the uh, mannequin dummy legs are over there on stage right. And the side with the head, her whole body is over there on stage left. So of course she's going to talk back to him because you can't see her cuddled up in there. And then when she comes, when he brings the two halves back together, she just pulls those legs out and leaves them on the floor of the box. And she climbs out. 
And the kid's thinking, huh, well, I guess that's the only way that could work, <laughs> right? You've offered him a better perception, and then he changes his own reality. That's what I do. I don't tell them they're wrong. I know they're wrong. I've been to places they will never go. It doesn't make me a better human being than them. It simply gives me a broader perspective. I've seen a lot of things that they've never seen. I've seen some things that they will never see. Some of them may travel one day, perhaps. A lot of people don't travel. They only know what they know within their little bubble. They don't go outside the bubble or outside their neighborhood, you know? So how do you, how do you get them to see something, you know, that they've never seen? Uh, you, you, you give them a perception. You, you bring it to them vicariously. So I, I, don't, I don't attack their realities. I just give them other perceptions that make more sense. And if they resonate with one of those, they change their own reality. And that's how you do it. And that's being done without judging them, right? Without, without trying to make them feel stupid. And exactly. I think that, that has been what is painful to watch culturally in the U.S. of late is it seems like that is happening more and more where people, the self-righteousness of you're stupid and I know what I'm talking about and, mm-hmm. and a, a, a lack of finesse of doing the perception move, which you just articulated. And, you know, in conclusion, I want to say one thing. Um, where are we headed? A lot of people don't, excuse me, don't talk about this. But, and, and why they don't talk about it, I don't know. The media don't talk about it. But this is what's happening. People, people in these movements, they know. The media knows it too, but they don't discuss it. Let me give background. This country was built on a two-tier society. White supremacy at the top, slavery at the bottom. And as we progress through the decades, we progress like this. Maybe like this, but never like this on an even plane, right? When I was a kid, the black population in this country was 12%. Uh, Native Americans were 1%. Hispanic people, around 2%. Asians, around 3%. Today, uh, Native Americans remain at 1%. They have not grown. Black people remain at 12%. Well, we're like 12.9, almost 13%. So we, we really haven't grown. Uh, Asians have almost doubled. They're like at 5.9, almost 6%. All right, so they doubled. Um, but still, 5 6%, not a whole lot. Uh, Hispanic people have more than doubled, more than tripled. They're like at 17 point something percent, Hmm. all right? So back then when I was a kid, whites were like 84, 86%, right? So whites of the the racist or supremacist mentality, their biggest nemesis, of course, were black people. You know, they didn't care about 1% Native American or 2% Hispanic, 12%, oh no, that's way too much, you know, we gotta control those people. So anyway, um, today, if you, if you take just just 12% black people and 17% Hispanic, that right there, 12 and 17, let alone the Asians and anybody else, that's, that's like 29% non-white. Hmm. This is happening. Yeah. All right? It is well predicted in the year 2042, which is 20 year, 21 years from now, two decades, for the first time in our history, this country will be 50-50. 50% white, 50% non-white. 
non-white meaning black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, right? There are a lot of white people in this country who welcome that, who don't have a problem with that. Hey, that's evolution, no big deal. You know, I don't see any problem. But there is a large swath of white people who do have a problem with that, all right? Because when you have sat on the throne of power for 402 years, that's when I first came here, right? Hmm. 1619, uh, slaves. Um, When you sat on the throne of power for 402 years, you don't want to see your throne legs being chopped down and your butt being lowered down to the level of the inferior people. You know, you want to stay on that throne. You want to maintain that power, that, that, that supremacy. And, that, you know, and that's, that's, that's normal with anybody. I mean, as, as a musician, you know, if, if, you have a, if you put out a record and it goes to number one on the charts, you don't want to see it fall down to number 99. You want to keep it up there at the top, in the top uh, 10, you know. Um, look at our last president. Okay, he was only on the throne of power for what? Four years. He went crazy. You know, he, he didn't want to get off. He still doesn't want to get off. He's trying to overturn the damn election, right? That's power. All right, so they are doing whatever they can do to stop this. They don't want to see 2042 come. And so they call it Rahowa, R-A-H-O-W-A. Look it up sometime, Rahowa. It stands for racial holy war, or for short, the race war. Okay, that's what the white supremacists call the race war, Rahoa. They also call it the Boogaloo, all right? They're looking for the race war to happen, to, 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 to keep that supremacy. When I first started doing this almost four decades ago, 37 years ago, um, actively, there was only the Ku Klux Klan, some not neo-Nazi groups, white power skinheads, that was about it. Today, the KKK, the neo-Nazis, the skinheads, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, the Three Percenters, you know, the, you know, the Vanguard, the, you know, all these different groups. And they're all saying, come join us, come join us. You know, we're, you know, we're going to take our country back. Take our country back. We're going to make America great again. Who says Again. Anybody who's going to run for president, you, me, anybody, we're all going to say, I'm going to make America great, or I'm going to make America greater than it's ever been. Who says I'm going to make America great again? Hmm. Again. When was again? Back when I was drinking from a separate water fountain, when I couldn't vote, when I, when I was refused service in a restaurant? Was, was that when again was? You know? Uh, anyway, um, you know, we're going to build that wall, send those people back to where they belong, all that kind of stuff. That's what Matt Cole told me in 1974, okay? And again in 1982, you know? If you don't leave, you'll be exterminated by the upcoming race war. He told me that in 1974, all right? What did Dylan Roof say he was doing? Trying to start the race war, all right? So now all these groups are trying to recruit people into them, and people are fearing. It won't take our country back. Um... You saw in Charlottesville, all these people marching, the Jews will not replace us, all that kind of nonsense. They, they feel their identity is being erased. Do you know the term white flight? Yeah. It barely exists anymore. Yeah. Because the color of the landscape of America has changed so much. Yeah. 
that anywhere you go, there's already somebody there who doesn't look like you. So where do you fly now? White flight is, is on its way out, you know? And so these people are feeling their identity is being erased. What people, you know, like, like Matt Cole told me, you know, we cannot be a pure race if we're miscegenating with mud races such as yours. We are becoming a mongrel race, right? That's the mongrel part, yeah. all right? So they call it, uh, what, what people in the Klan and the neo-Nazis tell me, they say, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation, race mixing, all right? So these groups are recruiting people, right? And when people go and join these groups that promise to make America great again or take our country back or send those people back to where they belong and they don't do it, some of these people get frustrated and they say, you know what? If the Klan can't do it or, or the National Socialist Movement can't do it or so-and-so can't do it, I'm going to do it myself. And that's when they go solo, like a Dylan Roof, and walk into a black church, boom, 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 boom. Murder nine black people doing Bible study. Go into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. Boom, 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 boom. Shoot up 11 Jews. Go into the uh, Walmart in El Paso, Texas, and murder 11, I mean, 23 Mexicans. Go to the uh, Sikh Indian uh, temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and murder six uh, Sikh Indian worshipers. These are called lone wolves, yeah. right? And we have intelligence agencies in this country that have operatives who can fit the role, fit the part of some of these groups and they can join these groups undercover and gather, you know, it looked like members yeah. and gather intelligence and report it back and foil some of these plots. In fact, you saw, the, you saw exactly what I'm talking about a few months ago when that crazy group in Michigan was gonna kidnap and murder the governor, yeah. Yeah. right? We already had intelligence in there. That's how we gathered that information and quashed that plot. And now those people are in jail, right? Okay, so we have the ability to infiltrate some of these groups. How do you infiltrate a lone wolf? You can't. How do you get in the, in the mind of one person? You can't. So as we get closer and closer to 2042, we're gonna see more and more of those lone wolves. You saw one a few months ago and that 17-year-old boy, Kyle Rittenhouse, who came over from Illinois with his gun, got some water from the cops, and went and shot three counter-protesters, murdered two of them, blew the third guy's arm off, and then went back home, all by himself, 17 years old. That's a lone wolf. And every time law enforcement kills one of those people or, or arrests them and goes and raids their house, what do they find? A cache of automatic weapons that are being stored for what? The race war. Right. So, like I said, that's what the that's what the insurrection was all about on January 6th. OK, how many people down there did you see of the thousands and thousands of people outside and the thousands that were inside? How many people did you see that looked like me or, or looked Hispanic or whatever or looked Asian? And there are plenty of black Americans, plenty of Asian Americans, plenty of, of Hispanic Americans. I mean, not as many as white Americans, but. I, I saw maybe one or two black people down there in that crowd. I, and to me, it looked like they were just observing, like, what the hell is going on? You know, I, I didn't see them, you know, you know, bashing in the window of the Capitol. You know what I mean? I, in fact, I didn't see anybody in the Capitol that was black other than the police, you know? 
or, or any other um, uh, color other than white. But what I did see in the Capitol was somebody marching around with a Confederate flag and another guy wearing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. I don't have to ask what's that about. Take our country back. You're in the Capitol saying, you know, with, with the Confederate flag, I know, I know what you want. Mm. You're, you're, you're saying Camp Auschwitz, I know what you want. You want to get rid of the Jews and get, and get rid, and go back to slavery and get rid of black people. You want to maintain that, that thing. You don't want 2042 to happen. That's why they tried to overthrow this, this Capitol and this election. You know, and we need to talk about that. Do you remember? Yeah, you're old enough. Do you remember um, 1999? Everybody was going into a panic about the year 2000. Sure. My VCRs must stop working. Yeah. The banks are going to shut down. The computers are going to blow up. I'm going to lose all my money. People were taking their money, their cash, out of the bank, yeah. hiding it in their bedroom, burying it in their backyards and stuff because of what? Y2K, right? People just went crazy. 2042, and of course, nothing happened with Y2K, mm -hmm. right? You know, your VCR still works. You know, you had to reset the clock and stuff because they didn't go to 2000 or something. But uh, anyway, um, 2042 is the white supremacist Y2K. You're freaking out about that. And, and you'll be around in 2042. I may or may not be. I'm a lot older than you, but that's what people are freaking out about in this movement. This is why you're seeing all these groups now popping up, why we got so many of these supremacist groups. Hmm. You know, they, they want to maintain that supremacy, and they're seeing their numbers come down. And 2042 is going to be 50-50. Between 2045 and 2050, for the first time in this country, whites will, will become the minority. Yeah. You know, and if you are a supremacist that is freaking you out, that that is getting you all disconcerted and you got to do something. You're a patriot. You got to defend your country. You know, this country was founded by white people. The Constitution was written by white people. This is a white man's homeland. You know, we, we're going to protect our country. I'm going to be a patriot. That's the mentality. And that's what you have to. You can't tell them they're wrong. You need to get off this. You've got to show them a better perception and they will change their own reality. I have to ask you if you think it's possible before 2042 to avert the worst case scenario or some of the worst case scenarios that you just articulated, you know, an increase in these yes. lone wolf shootings. Yes. I mean, it's going to get worse. Yeah. It, it, it's going to get worse. Uh, and not, not that I'm a pessimist, I'm an optimist, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this work. <laughs> right? Uh, I'm just being, being honest. Um, but... We have to do it the right way. And we have become too reactive instead of proactive. Look, look, we, we're just now, within the last two years, calling those people domestic terrorists. Terrorists for the last however long has been a term that we reserved for people of Middle Eastern descent. Timothy McVeigh was a terrorist. Yeah. Okay, um, these people who did the Capitol were terrorists. The people in Charlottesville were terrorists. You know, regardless of, of what good intentions they may thought they had, and some of them really think that they have the right intentions and good intentions, and may otherwise be decent people. Some of those people who overthrew the Capitol, tried to overthrow the Capitol, are good family people with bad ideas yeah. and wrong intentions. Um, 
but they are terrorists. And we're just now designating that as domestic terrorism. Before, you know, it's a, oh, Dylan Rufio, you know, he has some mental issues. No. Anybody who goes out and kills people have mental issues. But yet you, 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 you accuse uh, bin Laden or whoever of being a terrorist. You don't, you don't talk about him having a mental issue. Hmm. What's the difference between him and Dylan Roof? Same thing. I mean, yeah, he did it on a grander scale. Yeah. Okay, but he's still a terrorist. I don't, I don't want to hear about, Den, about uh, Dylan Roof's uh, mental issues or Robert Bowers at Tree of Life Synagogue's mental issues or Wade Page who did the uh, Sikh Temple in, in Wisconsin having mental issues. We know they have the mental issues. Anybody who does mass murder has a mental issue, but it's also called a terrorist. And we're just now assigning those terms. What's taking us so long? Yeah. That's being reactive, not facing the truth. Yeah. This country has a problem, and we need to address it now, not cross that bridge when we get to it. 2042 is only a moment away in yeah. time. Daryl, you are at the forefront of this. And um, again, I, I think I speak for a lot of people in expressing gratitude for the for the work you have done and will continue to do, hopefully for many, many years, because we need you. Um, I think you're an extremely important person in this country. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And I think I speak for a lot of people in wanting to be a part of that in some small way to avert some of these uh, scenarios that you articulated. Uh Thank you for doing this, man. I, I really, I really do appreciate the the time and the thought and the energy behind um, your conversation and and your efforts to improve the world. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And the best way we all can fight together is, you know, dedicate our time, our energy, our resources to promoting education and exposure. Education and exposure is what is what cures ignorance. Yeah, that is the cure. If you cure ignorance, then there's nothing to fear. Yeah. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to destroy. So stop worrying about this, those symptoms, focusing on destruction and fear and hate. Focus your time, energy, and whatever on curing the ignorance, and we can do it through education and exposure. That's a great place to start. Thanks again, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure.